The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 again. Romans chapter 12, we are still in this long, long list of admonitions and instructions that Paul is giving us about what the gospel-shaped life looks like. We're working our way slowly through this list of ways that the gospel is meant to impact us, the way the, the gospel is meant to affect our affections and our emotions and our attitudes and our priorities and our relationships. All of that needs to have the gospel pressed into every corner of our life. We looked at three of them last week. The end of verse 12, we saw being devoted to prayer, and then verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality, and I love how the Lord makes us put into practice the very things that we are learning. And so this week, uh, many of us had an opportunity to contribute to the needs of the saints and to practice hospitality. And I was just so blessed just looking Facebook and uh, down in Florida and seeing emails about, hey, our house is open, and if you need some warm place to stay, just come join us. That, that's how the church cares for each other. That, that's how we serve one another. That's how we minister to one another. That's truly how the body life is supposed to take place. And so grateful for the ways that the Lord has given us to practice these things even this week. I want to jump in at verses 14 to 16 this week, but I want to read our text again, so please follow along starting in verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation, never Pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men, if possible. So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As we come to verses 14 to 16 this morning, we're going to look at three or maybe four of these evidences of a gospel-shaped life. And I need to warn you, these are challenging. I feel like each week there's been another additional conviction by the Holy Spirit as we progress through this list, and you're going to feel that this morning. You're going to feel the constricting, convicting work of the Spirit of God as we embark upon these next few qualities. They're challenging. They're convicting. And I found myself a few times this week saying, ouch, ouch. 
that's what this portion of Scripture is doing for us. It is convicting us about our relationships. It is challenging us about how we treat one another. It is getting in our kitchens and in our grill, and it's really addressing some of the sin in our heart as it relates to how we treat other people. Come with me to number 14. So we're just going to jump right into this again. Number 14 is found in verse 14, and it's this. Number 14 is a friendly response. A friendly response. Notice verse 14. Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Paul here begins to deal with the the hostility of the world. He begins to deal here with the the people who hate us, our enemies, the, the people who mistreat us and oppress us, the people who persecute us. He's going to address it here in verse 14, and then he's going to come back, and in verses 17 to 21, from 17 to the end of the chapter, he is going to devote the entire five verses there to this very issue. That's how important this issue is. I want you to think for just a moment about this person in your life. Every one of you has one, I'm sure. Because we live in a sin-cursed world and there are people who are naturally going to oppose us. Each one of you here, I'm guessing, has someone in your life who does not like you, who might be your adversary, who who might be your persecutor, who harasses you, who who makes your life difficult. Maybe Maybe it's someone in your family. Maybe it's your spouse. Hopefully not, but perhaps. A boss, a co-worker, a neighbor, someone at your school. Your child, your parent. Maybe it's someone who's, who's picked on you because you're a Christian and you're living your life for Christ and your life is a rebuke to them and, and they don't want that. And so this person has singled you out maybe because you're a believer and, and your life is a conviction to them and so they don't like that and so they're, they're persecuting you and oppressing you because of the conviction that your life brings to them. All of us have person like this, maybe more. What do you do when people treat you this way? How do you respond to that enemy in your life, your adversary, the the person that does not like you and makes your life very difficult? How do you respond? I'll tell you how we all want to respond. You know what that's like. Someone does something very unkind to you. They mistreat you. They, they persecute you. And human nature wants to retaliate. Human nature wants to get revenge, to react, to, to hit back, to snap back, to get even. Someone snaps at you, you want to snap back. Someone pulls your hair, you pull their hair. Someone lies to you, you lie to them. That, that's human nature. This is our normal fleshly response. We want to strike back at people who hurt us. We want to return evil for evil because that's the inborn natural response of how we treat people who don't like us. Every one of us here this morning has developed a sinful way in responding to our persecutors and our enemies. We may not always say what we're thinking. 
We may not always do what we're thinking. We may not always react the way we want to react. But let's all admit it this morning that when someone mistreats us, there is something in our heart and we begin thinking through a response and things that we want to say and do to that person. Just hang out in an elementary school playground for a little while and that's pretty obvious. You're a dummy. I know you are, but what am I? You're ugly. I know you are, but what am I? That's how, we, that's how we play with each other. That starts on the playground, and you just grow up, and you just change forms. It is this response that Paul confronts. And his point here is, as believers, when, when the gospel is permeating our life, when, when the work of Jesus Christ has gripped our lives and is manifesting itself in us, when, when the, the life of Christ and His work in us is in the very DNA of our spiritual lives, you're going to, on the one hand, avoid the sinful tendencies of cursing that individual, and on the other hand, you're going to actually bless them. Counterintuitive. This is countercultural, but this is what God expects. Look at verse 14. He says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. And so the assumption here on Paul's part is that there will be people who persecute you. That's the, that's the assumption of Scripture. This is what Jesus says, this is what Paul says. The assumption in the New Testament is not that you might have to face this, but that you will. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, He says, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Jesus says, you just need to expect this. You just need to know that this is part and parcel of your life as a follower of me. Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, when He sends the disciples out, He says, Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. The assumption is this is going to happen. You're going to have people who don't like you because you named the name of Christ. John 15, that famous chapter, verses 18 to 21, Jesus says, If the world hates you, you know it's hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Do you understand that? Do you understand that when you come to know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are signing up for a life of opposition to a world that hates Christ and therefore hates you. Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is a 100% or your money back guarantee. You're going to be persecuted. Slandered, abused, mocked, insulted. Don't ever think that that's not normal. Don't, don't ever get to a point in your, your Christian life where you're surprised by this. You, you should never be surprised by this. In fact, Peter said in 1 Peter 4, he says, Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed as to your glory to do this. Don't be shocked. 
Do not be shocked if someone hates you because of your love for Christ and because of your life. And so the question is, how do we respond? How do we respond to this kind of opposition and animosity? How do we respond to our enemies? Paul's very clear. You bless them. You eulogeo them, where we get our word eulogize. You go to a funeral, people stand up and people begin saying nice things about the individual who passed away. They, they speak well of them. They say something about them in favorable terms. They, they honor that individual. In a sense, they extol or praise that individual by their, their testimony. This is the idea of, of eulogizing somebody, and that's exactly the word that Paul uses here. He says, when it comes to your enemies, you must eulogize them. That doesn't mean you hope that they're dead. It means you speak kindly of them. You bless them. In a sense, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, you are calling down God's blessing upon them. You are asking God to do good to them. You are asking God to show kindness to them, to shower them with grace, to show them mercy. This is the heart of a true believer whose heart has been transformed by Christ that when you are mistreated, your response as a natural, natural response as a believer ought to be, God, bless that person. Be so kind to that person, Lord, that, that they experience your abundant grace. Is that what you do? Is that how you treat your enemies? I find it very curious that the very next phrase in verse 14 is, bless and do not curse. Why does he add that? Because Paul knows our response. He knows our natural inclination is when we are mistreated is to curse someone. To do the very opposite of bless them is to actually, instead of call down God's blessing upon them, we actually want to call down God's judgment upon them. That's what curse means. To cause injury or harm by some means of a statement. To utter imprecations or to wish evil against a person. That's what a curse is. Is a curse is a desire to call down God's judgment upon someone else. Now think for a moment. Think about what you are asking in that moment. In your heart of hearts, when you want something bad to happen to your enemy, you are wanting God's wrath to be poured out upon that individual. That's serious. Because the implications of God's wrath being poured out upon that individual is eternity in hell forever. That's serious. You want that person to suffer the torments of eternal wrath under God's judgment forever. That's critical. And so Paul says you, you need to love your enemies. You need to love them. Bless them. This is what makes Christianity distinct from every other religion. In fact, Jesus even noted this. Listen to Matthew chapter 5. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, you remember, said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what the Pharisees were going around saying. Oh, we're great. We're, we're loving our neighbors. We're just loving them so well. And yet Jesus turns that on the head and he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, are you going around patting yourself on your back saying, man, I really love people. I love everyone that loves me. At the same time, hate those who hate you? Jesus says that's not true Christianity. True believers love their enemies. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 33, kind of a similar section. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. This is is the very antithesis of what our flesh wants to do. But is this not what Christ did? Hold your finger here in Romans chapter 12 and go over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Just for a moment, take your your Bibles and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, right after the book of James. 1 Peter chapter 2, and and I want you to notice towards the end of chapter 2, Peter, writing about suffering, writing about the trials and the persecutions that believers were facing then and will likely face today as well, look at... Look at how Peter uses Christ as an example, about how Christ is our example in the midst of this suffering. Look at verse 21. He says, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Here it is. Christ is your example in suffering, in persecution, in opposition. When there are people who are making your life difficult, Christ is your example. And what is the example he set for us? Look at verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now watch this, verse 23, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. Think about that. He was unjustly arrested. He was brought before people who mocked him and scorned him and beat him and afflicted him and falsely accused him. He was betrayed, and yet he did not revile. He uttered no threats, but what did he do? Look at the end of verse 23. He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's the response. Lord, this may be wrong, this may be unfair, that I did not deserve this, this is unjust suffering, and yet I entrust myself to you, and I will not revile in return, and I will utter no threats. That's Christ-like conduct. Go back to Romans chapter 12. This is very radical. This is very, very radical. One commentator, Tom Schreiner, he says, the injunction to bless those who persecute us is one of the most revolutionary statements in the New Testament and can carry, be carried out only by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's right. This is a revolutionary statement. This is counterintuitive and countercultural. It's something that the world knows absolutely nothing about because the world doesn't respond this way. The world says, you hit me, I hit you but not believers. What makes us so radical is that not only are we to not 
stop, uh, not curse people. Only, not only are we to, to, to avoid cursing our enemies, we're actually to call down God's blessing upon them. It's not enough to just not curse them. And, and we may be able for a while to do that. We might be able to hold our tongues and we might be able to refrain from saying unkind things and we might be able for a time to, to actually hold ourselves back a little bit and, and not actually curse them or wish God's judgment upon them. We might in our own flesh be able to do that and yet, can you do the rest of it? Can you bless them? Much harder to do. But this is one of the ways we love them. This is one of the ways we love the world. This is one of the ways we care for the world. This is one of the ways that we show our love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And oftentimes, let's face it, love hurts. Do you think this feels good in that moment? Does it feel good to love your enemies? Of course not. Of course it doesn't feel good. But love for others calls us to bless and not curse. Are you doing that? I read a fascinating story this week about a man by the name of Jacob DeShazer. He was one of uh, the Doolittle Raiders. Remember Jimmy Doolittle and the 16 B-25s that took off from the carrier in the Pacific and bombed Japan after they attacked Pearl Harbor? He was on one of those missions it was the last plane in the B-25s, and they flew and they dropped their bombs on Japan, and the, the plan was for them to land somewhere in China, but they were forced to take off ahead of time because they were noticed and, and found out, and so they ran out of gas. They had a parachute out of their B-25 over China. He was caught by the Japanese, made a prisoner of war, imprisoned for 40 months, 34 of those months spent in solitary confinement, almost three years in solitary confinement. He was beaten, malnourished. Three of his crew members were executed by our firing squad. Another died of slow starvation. He fought dysentery, froze in the winter without blankets, and suffered in the summer heat with no ventilation. He was raised in a Christian family, and so he asked for a Bible. He persuaded one of his guards to give him a Bible, which he did. He gave it to him for three weeks, and he read it, and he came to Christ in a POW camp. He says, I eagerly began to read its pages, the Bible. I discovered what God had given me, new spiritual eyes, and that when I looked at the enemy officers and guards who had starved and beaten my companions and me so cruelly, I found my bitter hatred for them changed to loving pity. I realized that these people did not know anything about my Savior, and that if Christ is not in a heart, it is natural to be cruel. So, kind of made a little vow in his heart, and he says, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to go be a missionary, and I'm going to come back to Japan. And in August of 1945, he was released. He went back to the U.S. He went to seminary. He returned to Japan in 1948, and for 30 years of his life, he preached to the Japanese people and planted a church in the very town he bombed. And not only that, the Japanese pilot who led the attack on Pearl Harbor became a Christian in 1950 after reading a track that he wrote. And he spent much of his life with the commander of the pilot of the, the aircraft who bombed Pearl Harbor. He spent much of his days in ministry with him preaching the gospel in Japan. Amazing. 
He died in 2008 at the age of 96. Is that you? Would you respond that way? To that person in your life who asked you to think about right now, that person that is making your life difficult, who, who in your heart of hearts you want to do all you can to show them how unkind they are and you have a few choice words that you want to give to that individual, are, are you willing to bless those who persecute you? It's one of the marks of a gospel-shaped life. Number 15, let's move on. Number 15 is a joyful collaboration. A joyful collaboration. And it's found in verse 15. And again, by the way, each one of these could be a separate sermon. We're just going to kind of try and hit the highlights and work through these. Look Look at verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Paul says when when the gospel is affecting your life and and when Christ is foremost in your your spiritual vision, when when you've truly been transformed by the gospel and you are living in light of the gospel, then one of the evidences of that is you're going to enter into the rejoicing of others as if it was your very own. You're going to actually be happy when others are happy and you're going to be excited when others are excited and you're going to be joyful when those around you are joyful. You're glad for them. You're excited for them. You identify with them. You share in their joy whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, but particularly when they're believers. You're going to enter into that joy. You're going to enter into that fellowship. You're going to be engaged with fellow believers to the degree that when someone comes to you and says, I am so excited. Look what God did in my life. I am just absolutely thrilled at what God has done. Let me share it with you. And your response is, I am so excited for you. I am legitimately and genuinely thrilled for what God is doing in your life. This is what it means to be part of a dynamic body life when when we're truly caring for one another, when we're a part of a church family that is close and united and one. When that happens, your joy is my joy. My joy is your joy. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 26. Paul says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I love that. If you're here and you're honored and God blesses you in a certain way, then I want to celebrate with you. I want to participate in that with you. And it's one of the ways that we show our love towards one another. Remember how we started this whole series back in verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. And verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. You want to show love to the people sitting around you? Then be thrilled when they're joyful. When God does something tremendous in their life, you, you, your, you, their joy becomes your joy, and your love for them compels you to enter into their joy. John Stott says, love never stands aloof from other people's joys or pains. Love identifies with them sings with them and suffers with them. Love enters deeply into their experiences and their emotions, their laughter and their tears, and feels solidarity with them, whatever their mood. Do you love people that way? It's 
one of the greatest expressions of your abandonment of self-love. Let's face it, every one of us loves ourselves a lot, really a lot. We're natural self-worshippers. And one of the greatest tests of your selflessness, one of the greatest evidences of your love for other people is when you can set aside your own desires and say to that other person, I am so absolutely thrilled for what God is doing in your life. That's how true believers respond. Remember the parables in Luke 15? Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son, remember? Remember what happens at the end of each one of those? Man loses his sheep, he has a hundred of them, he loses one of them, he leaves the 99 and he goes and he finds the one lost sheep and he comes home and what does he say? Rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost. What does he want? He wants other people around him to enter into his joy and they do and there's a celebration that the lost sheep has been found. Lost coin. Woman loses her coin, she tells her friends they can't find it, they search for it, she finds it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors and she says, rejoice with me for I found the coin which I had lost. There's a celebration, there's this joy, a mutuality that occurs amongst followers of Christ. Parable of the lost son. Son comes home, father puts a ring on his finger, sandals, brings out the fatted calf, they kill it, they celebrate and a party ensues as they rejoice. Do you do that? Do you enter into the joys of others? And now, wait, before you answer that, before you begin patting yourself on their back, let me just say that I believe this is much harder than the next one. I believe this is very difficult. I believe it's harder than most of us want to admit that it is. And I think there's a reason that Paul puts this one, rejoice with those who rejoice, in front of the one when weep with those who weep. And the reason is because, let's just all admit it, when someone gets something and they're blessed and they have something that's good and our heart begins to do what? I want that. Envy invades your heart. Jealousy invades your heart. You begin to have this heart which is a cauldron of covetousness and spite and envy, and all of a sudden on the outside you're saying, oh, that's, that's great, really, really happy for you. And on the inside your heart is seething and saying, I deserved it more than they did. Superficially rejoice, but on the outside we want what they got. It's harder than you think. Just, just pay attention. The next time you hear some great news from somebody, just the next time someone tells you something wonderful about their life, just the next time someone says, man, God was so good to me this week, He did this, just watch your initial heart reaction and watch what happens. And I told you before, this is where I felt the ouch. It's right here. Because my heart is fleshly and I'm wicked. And in my sinful flesh... I want it, and so do you. I remember this was truly tested for me as a young believer in college when for three and a half years I had worked diligently to be accepted into medical school and 
did all the pre-med classes and took the MCATs and tried to be as diligent, as competitive as I could to be, get into, to be accepted into medical school, applied to medical schools, and within three months of graduation, I realized I was not going to medical school. And my freshman roommate comes up to me soon afterward and says, Todd, I got great news. I got accepted to med school. And they were, he was so excited and Joe just was thrilled that he got accepted. And then my present roommate at that time also got accepted to medical school. And, and Dayton says, Todd, I'm so thrilled. I, I got in. I got my acceptance letter. And my initial heart response, you only got that because I was your roommate. I'm just kidding. I carried you. No, that's not true. But I wanted what they got. I wanted it. I wanted, I wanted the, the uh, acceptance that they received. It's hard. It's harder than you think it is. Julie and I experienced it as a couple. For the number of years, wanting to build a family and watching another Mother's Day come and go and Father's Day come and go. Another Invitation to a baby shower for my wife, another birth announcement in the mail, another birthday party for kids. It's not easy. It's not easy. And yet the gospel, when it's truly pulsing through your veins, and you're truly thinking about God's grace in your life, and when Christ is foremost in your heart, your initial reaction ought to be, I'm so excited for you. I'm going to enter into your joy, and my heart is just going to soar with gratitude and thanksgiving because what God is doing in your life and the blessings that you are receiving, is that you? When your team loses and the other friend's team wins? When you get passed over for the promotion and your coworker who you don't think deserves it gets it when when you've been working hard for that award or that recognition and and someone else gets it and you don't when someone instagrams a picture from florida and you're stuck in the polar vortex <laughs> are you happy Yes, Lord, please, another ice storm. We love it. <laughs> One commentator has well said, there are no politics of envy in the kingdom of God. There are no politics of envy in the kingdom of God. Is that you? Do you rejoice? I, no, I mean really rejoice. Genuinely, legitimately rejoice when your fellow believer, your brother and sister in Christ, has God's blessing and goodness on their life, do you really enter into that and say, I am so excited for you? It's a test of where you're at with the Lord and a test of whether the gospel's permeating your heart. Number 16 is a sympathetic compassion. A sympathetic compassion. It's the last phrase in verse 15. Weep with those who weep. 
Now, I told you that the first one, I think, is much more difficult than the second one, but that's not to say that this one is not always easy. I don't think it is. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes, in our flesh, we're glad at the calamities of others. Right? Just, just admit it. When, when someone else fails or when something else happens to someone that, that brings a hardship into their life, when there's calamities that enter into other people's lives, there's a little piece of our heart that if we're willing to admit it, at times is, is there because we're, we're happy when people fail. Because what it does is it makes us look better. It puffs ourselves up. It, it props ourselves up. It makes us look better when others are down and hurting. There, there's something about that environment where suddenly our heart quietly and secretly and momentarily rejoices at the failures and the troubles of other people. Well, I'm not as bad. Man, if you hadn't done that, this wouldn't have happened to you. I guess I'm better There's a proverb, Proverbs 17, verse 5, that says, He who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. Why is there a proverb about rejoicing at calamity if it doesn't happen? It happens. There's another proverb, 24, verse 17, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not be glad in your heart when he stumbles. Why do those Proverbs exist if that's not the case? Of course that's true. Of course that happens. We rejoice at times when our enemy falls. And so Paul here calls for a radically different response. He calls for a response of compassion and sensitivity and sympathy. He calls for us to not be indifferent to the sorrows of others. He calls for us to be joyful when others are joyful, but he also calls us to be willing to enter into the life of the person who's down and discouraged. Look over to Proverbs, I'm sorry, Romans 15, verse 1. Just a couple pages, two chapters over to Romans 15, verse 1. Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. We ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. We ought, we ought to be willing to enter into the troubles and the hardships and the difficulties of other people so that we can sustain them and bear their burdens and, and sustain them in the midst of their difficulties. Galatians 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. This is what it means to be part of the body of Christ. This is what it means to be part of the church. This is gospel-shaped living, and these are gospel-shaped relationships. When, when the people sitting around you are in trouble, and there's trials in their life, and there's suffering in their life, your heart as a believer ought to be so concerned for them that you immediately pour yourself into their situation, and you empathize with them. think, though, if we're willing to admit it, sometimes we're so wrapped up in our own concerns that we're blind to the struggles of others. At, at times, we're so focused on our own issues, and we're so focused on ourselves, and we're so consumed with our present issues in our life that we can't see the issues of other people that are struggling, and we can't enter into their, their trouble because we're so focused on ourselves. This is a test. 
This is a test of your humility, and this is a test of where you are with the Lord, and a test of how much the gospel is genuinely impacting your heart. That can you look outside your present struggles to see when others are hurting? When your thumb is injured, the whole body is affected by it. You're building that wall and you pound your finger, what happens? The whole body hurts. And when someone who's a brother or sister in Christ is in a trial, the whole church hurts. We all feel for them. I look back on the last 14 years here of being a Maranatha and look back on some of the major events in this church, particularly in the deaths of those who were maybe premature or unexpected. There's, there's this immediate pain that we all feel. It affects us. It affects every one of us. It's not just that individual and, oh, sorry about that, we'll pray for it. No, there, there's this genuine weeping with those who weep. We're drawn into that sorrow. We're, we're brought into that struggle and we feel it with them. Do you share in the sorrows of others? Do you weep with those who weep? There's a couple of implications I want to draw out of this. First, first implication is this, that this means that you're willing to really get to know each other. It means that you're really willing to get to know people. Because you can't rejoice with those who rejoice and you can't weep with those who weep if, if you'd only know them superficially. If there's only this surface kind of relationship and you see him at church on Sunday and you pass in the hallway and you pass in the room and, hey, how's it going? And that's it. You're not going to be able to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. I understand you can't get to know 250 people well. I, I get that. You can't develop close ties with every person around you, but have you developed close ties with some people in this church? Are you well-tuned to the needs of fellow believers? Do you know when someone's struggling? Or, or are you aloof and fringed and kind of out on the edge and not really perceptive of those, of those things? No, true believers enter into close relationships with fellow believers. They, they spend time together. They get to know each other. They move past the trivialities so that when someone's hurting, there's this mutuality that occurs. That's why our small groups are important. Why spending time together outside of church is important. That's why getting on the phone periodically is important. That's why having meals together and engaging fellowship with one another, that's all important. That's not just filler. That's body life. That, that's what believers do. And you may have to be intentional about it. You may have to plan for it. And you may have to be strategic about it. But if you're going to be able to do what verse 15 tells you to do and tells us to do, then, then there has to be a close unity and a close relationship with fellow believers so that when they're joyful, you can enter in, and when they're sorrowful, you can enter in. The other implication is this, that you're willing to enter into people's suffering even when it's awkward. Even when it's awkward. Here's what I mean by that. I think sometimes we are reluctant 
to get into people's sorrows because we don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We can't fix it. There's nothing to say, and there's, there's no words that will solve that dilemma or solve that problem. And, and so I think in our flesh, sometimes we just say, well, I, I'm not even going to go. It's just too awkward. I don't like the silence. I don't know what to say. I've been called to houses moments after a loved one has passed away, and I have no idea what to say. But I think having a ministry of presence is critical. You go anyway. Might it be awkward? Might be. You might not know what to say? Probably not. You go anyway. You enter into their troubles. You, you go hug them. You cry with them. You let them talk. You listen to them. You don't have to have a magic word to dissolve the tears or fix the situation. You're not going to have that. But who cares? Go. Be with them. Cry with them. Enter into their sorrow. Julie has told me a number of times about when she was 10 years old and very sick. Her appendix ruptured and was brought to the hospital about 11 o'clock at night and Saturday night. Very serious. She was put into immediate surgery and so her parents called their pastor at that time and let me just be honest, 11 o'clock on a Saturday night is not when you want to get a call as a pastor. And yet he comes down to the hospital and sits, not really saying anything, just there till 2 in the morning. It's a ministry of presence because you care. And you want to enter into their sorrows. So if you're, if you're ever wondering, should you, should you send that card or not? Send it. If you're ever wondering, should you make the phone call or not? Make the phone call. If you're ever wondering whether you should go over there and minister to that person and just tell them you love them and pray with them? Do it. Do it. Sympathize with them. Identify with them. Get into their, their situation and, and bear that burden with them. It's what Christ did. Shortest verse in the Bible. You all know it. What is it? Jesus wept. Lazarus dies. Jesus enters into their sorrow and he wept for them. Do you do that? Do you care enough about fellow believers to respond that way? Number 17, we'll end with this one. An impartial attitude. An impartial attitude. Verse 16. We're just going to get the first phrase. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Notice the first phrase. Be of the same mind toward one another. This, this fits perfectly with verse 15. 
live in harmony with each other. One version says, have the same concern for everyone. The idea here is be united, be harmonious, be impartial, be unbiased, pursue a spirit of unity with fellow believers. This phrase, be of the same mind towards one another, is one of Paul's favorite phrases. Look over to chapter 15, verse 5. You were just there a moment ago. Look back to verse 5 of chapter 15. He says, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind toward one another. Be of the same mind. Philippians 2.2, same phrase. Be of the same mind toward one another. Philippians 4, verse 2, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Here's the idea. You live in harmony. You live in unity with fellow believers. There's There's a oneness in how we think. That doesn't mean you all think the same way about everything. It doesn't mean you all eat the same foods and wear the same clothes and have the same thoughts and opinions and desires. It doesn't mean you lose all your individuality. It doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean you even think exactly on every single issue. It doesn't mean that. But when it comes to the unity of the church, there's a oneness, a unity, a harmony. As we look to Christ, as we hear His Word, that there, there's a oneness in how we serve one another and display that attitude of unity towards one another. There's two implications I want to draw very quickly. First, that means there's no partiality. In other words, you don't play favorites. You don't hang out with certain people because of what they can give you or what they can get to you or, or what it brings to you. You don't look at people with a certain attitude of favoritism because of their money or their status or their economic prestige or their social status in the community. You don't look for that. It doesn't matter who the person is, where they come from, what their education is, how much money they make, what kind of clothes they're wearing. None of that matters. If we had time, you could look over at James chapter 2 and just see how God hates favoritism. We don't display favoritism. Second implication is we, we strive for unity in our relationships with one another. No dissension in the ranks. You just need to know that, listen, Satan wants to, Satan wants to divide Maranatha Bible Church. You just need to know that that's his M.O. And what Satan is going to do is he's going to use situations in your life and the life of this church to sow seeds of discord within the body. That's how he wants to divide. He often starts with the leaders first, then he works it down into the church. That's how he works. That's his strategy. Divide and conquer. Get you a little askew with somebody else in the church. Let there be a little burr under your saddle towards somebody. Let there be a little break in the relationship. Let there be a little start of factions that develop within the church. Don't overlook offenses. Start to get a little upset about how they said what they said to you, what they said to you, how they treated you. Paul says you can't have that. Verse 16, you'd be of the same mind towards one another. You fight that. You resolve issues with each other. 
you work hard. Ephesians chapter 4, you, you work diligently to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That takes effort. That takes diligence. That takes you going to have the uncomfortable conversation. That means you're willing to, to put others first and resolve that conflict quickly rather than letting it fester and grow. So are, are you striving for unity? Are you striving for unity? Is there someone here today that you're out of fellowship with? Someone who's offended you, someone who's done something, you've not been able to get past it, you haven't resolved that issue, that it's still there, it's kind of the, the elephant in the room, the molehill. You might need to go to that person today. And you might need to resolve that. And if you can't resolve it, then you may have to just say, you know what, we're going to let love cover this issue. Because I care more about you, and I care more about Christ, and I care more about the gospel, and I care more about this church than whether I'm offended or not. This is what the gospel does for us. We have eight more to go. Come back next week. Let's pray. Father, we need these very practical reminders. We need these very specific ways that Christ invades our life. And we need to see lived out in, in the Scriptures and displayed before us what, what we need to consider when it comes to how we relate to one another. This is convicting stuff. It's challenging stuff, Father, but we pray that you will help us to put into practice the kind of humble, humble heart and humble responses so that we can preserve the unity of this church, we can be of the same mind. Lord, nurture relationships here, strengthen the fellowship. Lord, make us more willing to die to self for the sake of Christ and the unity of your church. Let us respond with love to those who hate us, those who persecute us. For the glory and the honor of Christ our Savior, in His name we pray, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.